0: We started our series in 2 Peter, I had to check my computer and see when it was. It was at the first of the year. Today is going to be the last message from 1 Peter. This book deals with false teachers and how the plans of God for the future give us hope and give us Confidence. And accountability, because we know that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. And so there's some soberness and yet eagerness that goes along with that. As I heard someone say this week, that when it comes to Christ coming back, we're not on the planning committee, we're on the welcoming committee. I like that. I like that. And that Earth is the closest that a non-believer will get to heaven, because they're going to end up in hell. And Earth is the closest a Christian will get to hell, because they're going to end up in heaven. Knowing our destination makes a difference, and that's a lot of what Peter is is talking about. Let's stand up as we look at our passage and read it together. tell you, for this portion, let's do this. I'll read uh, the even number of verses, so I'll start with the first one. You read the verse after that aloud and, and so on, okay? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures." but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You may be seated. So we pick up where Peter has been in the middle of a statement about Paul being loved, calls him beloved Paul, and he says, Paul dispenses wisdom as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter is affirming Paul's wisdom, but notice what he says at the end of the verse when he clumps it in with the rest of the Scriptures, and he calls Paul's writing Scripture. Alongside the Old Testament, alongside the Gospel, the letters of Paul are considered Scriptures. Now, there are many folks today who are within the church teaching, you know, pastors, take it upon themselves to voice their opinion about the apostles and particularly Paul by claiming that Paul's writings were not of Scripture. Why? Because Paul has sinned against the progressive agenda by speaking about, you know, roles for men and women. That's anathema. That's cursed. Or talking about sexual immorality. Okay, again, cultural sins that you cannot do, that Paul did. Now, uh, does this mean that Paul was understood by all? Obviously not, because he says, Peter says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Interestingly, John Calvin, the reformer, was so disturbed by this statement that he thought it criticized the Apostle Paul, he didn't think Peter could have even written this book. Isn't that interesting? Calling somebody's work hard to understand does not constitute being an insult, all right? It may refer to just Paul being complex and maybe even brilliant. The false teachers are especially oblivious to the meaning of Scripture because of their state of mind and their heart. And that's been plain throughout this book. Notice that Peter does not say it's impossible to understand Paul. He says that it can be difficult. The Lord willing, um, we're going to be in the book of Romans after this book. You're thinking, well, wait a minute, Kevin, aren't you retiring in several years? Are you going to have enough time (laughs) to go through the book of Romans? I hope so. We'll see. Um, But difficult to understand? I think Romans is. um, But that doesn't mean it's not needful um, or that it's impossible. Uh, The idea presented is that because of the character and the spiritual state of the false teachers, they twisted the Scriptures to make them say what they intended, and then they would deceive others. Ignorant, unstable, twisting Scriptures. That describes the false teachers. So let's break this down. When people are ignorant, it means they either lack the education, or information that's needed. Um, In the case of the false teachers, they prided themselves that they knew stuff. Oh, they knew Paul. But listen, the jeopardy category of the Apostle Paul netted them zero dollars. (laughs) Okay? Their bias toward immorality exacerbated their ignorance. Unstable, in this context, conveys the idea of vacillation and weakness due to spiritual character. You remember how the Bereans were characterized in Acts? It was the opposite of unstable. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. There's a there's an eagerness to learn. You know, one of the things I hope never happens to me, no matter how old you are, you should always be humble and willing to learn. And never think of yourself as a know-it-all, or, or I've got this down. There's always things to learn. Every conversation can give you something new. And I think if we... If we stay with that attitude, uh, we're more stable than thinking we've got it all together. Willing to learn. You examine the scriptures. And when, when truth is sought, then embraced, stability comes. The psalmist said this, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. So Peter has made plain that these false teachers have been led by fleshly passions. Their feelings were unstable. And Paul even says that in the latter days, people are going to have itching ears. They're going to, you know, listen to people, go to churches that just tell them what they want to hear. Right? And... That's unfortunate. Paul said, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Peter then says the false teachers twist the truth, and this leads to their own demise. Twist, when it's used in the physical sense, it's actually used in the, concept, uh, in the context of being tortured, where your body you know, is, is twisted and, and bent and wrenched. And this is what people do with the truth. They twist. They make it say what a plain rendering is not saying. Or, you know what we've seen today... Thank you to postmodernism, they make it so vague you don't know what they're saying. Okay? That's also, I think, twisting it. And it was done by the false teachers with Paul. Now, we are not told exactly how they did this with Paul, but I think a good example would be Paul elucidating about justification meaning we are declared righteous before God without impunity. I mean, the the false teachers would take this and excuse their sin because, hey, I'm already in, right? Or when Paul says, everything is lawful for me in 1 Corinthians 6.12. Or when he says in Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. They would go to town, likely, on statements like this, and then put their immorality in a category approved by God. So obviously people take all kinds of liberty with the word of God. And they'll say things like, you know, hell is not real. The Old Testament obviously is not divinely inspired because it's too harsh, judgmental. Only the spirit of Jesus is our guide. If I hear this one more time, I swear my head is going to explode. And these are people within the church. We don't go by the actual words of the gospel. It's the spirit of the gospel. Whatever I imagine Jesus to be, you know, watching Oprah reruns, holding hands and singing Kumbaya, that's kind of what they have in terms of who Jesus is. We just can't go by all that judgment that Jesus talked about. There are definitely hucksters within the church. Let me name a few in our town. It is, no, no, I'm just kidding, all right. <laughs> I'm just teasing, all right. But seriously, though, we have to have our ears and eyes open, okay? Okay. Conning people, utilizing the scriptures toward fleshly pursuits, right? And the end result is their own destruction, okay? Now, if you look at that in the Greek, all right, you might try to soften that, but you know what it means? Their own destruction. <laughs> right? Lest you think Peter's just blowing smoke here, doesn't mean this, consider how many times he has stated the fate of false teachers. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing about themselves swift destruction. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then Jude adds, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Just let that set for a minute. God will not have his grace turned into license. He will not have his moral authority mocked without consequence okay listen I don't wish that for people and neither should you but it's true and if I face the tr- the truth of that then I all the more want to warn to communicate the gospel and Take inventory of my own life. Because I think God will hold us as believers accountable as well. Not whether we go to heaven or hell, that's on Jesus. And I believe that's secured in him. But we still will have our, our thoughts and our works evaluated. These false teachers refuse to submit their lives to the scrutiny of Scripture. But instead, they twisted them to, you know, condone their sinful lifestyles. Consider some mantras today. I'm not going to have all of them. In fact, I think in between Romans, I've decided I'm going to do this. And so this is kind of a a preview. Uh, I'm going to talk about the things that Jesus never said. Uh, Okay? You've heard some of these. Here's one. Love is love. God wants you to follow your heart. Be true to yourself, believe in yourself. Live your truth. As long as you are happy, that's all that matters. These are all invitations to follow the flesh and to deny the diligence and obedience it takes to follow Jesus. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. Peter is now giving a kind of final charge because of the twisting of the false teachers with the word of God particularly with Paul. He's admonishing them to stay awake. Don't be taking in, taken in by their teaching, and don't lose your footing. And we've seen his affection for the recipients, the church, uh, throughout this book. Four times he calls them beloved. Uh, this is just in chapter 3. Beloved, Stir up your sincere mind in verses 1 and 2. Beloved, don't overlook the patience of God in verse 8. Beloved, be diligent in verse 14. And then here, beloved, don't get carried away. Take care that you don't get carried away. Take care means to watch, to protect, to to guard. Paul doesn't want them influenced by the false teachers. With their denial of the second coming... That was a main part of what they were saying. Lord is not coming back. Look how long it's been. He's not going to do this. And then justifying their corruption and, and immorality. Now listen, Jesus gave similar warnings, like Peter did, about the end of times. He would say, for instance, in Mark 13, watch out that no one deceives you, that no one deceives you. Now listen, despite the post-modern mantra, if somebody deceives us, what does that assume? If there's deception, what else is there? There's got to be truth. There has to be truth for there to be deception. So how do you know that there's deception? By knowing the truth, right? If you work in a bank, the way you know a fake bank Dollar bill, a counterfeit, is what? You got to get to know the real one. It's the same with this. Now you can know the truth, but it's not enough. We have to also be on guard and alert. It's easy to take a little knowledge from the Bible and be overconfident. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 therefore, let Anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. So let's at least be open to the possibility that we can be bamboozled. That we may not be as strong as we think we are, so we have to be on guard, right? To counter, be convinced of Christ. Convinced that one day we will meet him. That's not some theological abstract. That's a personal meeting with the God-man, the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings, the Messiah who's coming back. We will meet him in the future. And so we're not just awaiting, you know, again, some nebulous, impersonal thing, we're awaiting him. Until then, he has promised us to never leave us or forsake us, in Hebrews 13, 5. He's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, in Proverbs 18, 24. And in Peter said, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Notice that those who seek to destabilize are called lawless people. They care not for the written law on a page and they care not for the law within the heart. Why? Because such laws infringe upon fleshly appetites. They're no different than a three-year-old who doesn't want to hear the word no. And that, essentially, are what adults are who indulge themselves in fleshly appetites. They just don't want to hear no. That's why I don't believe in God. I don't believe this Bible. And what Peter says, when you follow the breadcrumbs, what you find is people who just don't want to hear no. They want to do what they want to do, regardless of what God says. If we give them an ear and allow their thinking to be adopted, we too can lose our stability and we're seeing it happen all the time, unfortunately. And chief among those ways is, I think, the the launching pad, which is this idea of tolerance. And And in the name of love, you begin to acquiesce to things that the Word of God denounces, you know? Could be abortion, could be immorality, could be an identity apart from God's created design. These are aberrations. They're not to be embraced. And again, I have to give the caveat, I always have to say this, is that people are not our enemy. You understand that, right? It's, it's the ideas that we're talking about here. So, no matter what people are into, they're never the enemy. They're made in the image of God. They still deserve to be valued. But the ideas that they hold to are demonic. Peter says, we lose stability, all right? Now, to be fair to the theme of the book, falling away, okay, Uh, can refer to apostasy, leaving the faith. And I think because of the, the book, we know it also has to do with immorality. So one deals with belief and the other behavior. Now, we can assume because of the recipients who he wrote the book to, it's to a church, that the majority of his audience were believers. And so the penalty for their falling away was what? Instability. But I think there's a secondary application that could be there, that there could have been people within the congregation that were not believers, yet they were in the church. So if they were considering falling away from Christ not to believe the gospel, well then obviously their consequences would be even more severe. A new highly efficient system is being used in San Francisco and New York City to detect the presence of toxins in the city's water supply, a possible sign of a terrorist threat. They found that the best uh, test, tool, for monitoring such threats are, guess what, bluegills. According to an article by the Associated Press, a small number of bluegills are kept in a tank at the bottom of the city's water supply plant. Because they're highly attuned to chemical imbalances in their environment. And when a disturbance is present in the water, the bluegills react against it. And if the computerized system of the treatment plant detects even the slightest change in a bluegill's vital signs, it sends out an email alert. I mean, nature has its own bluegills to detect toxins in water. And God uses his word to detect toxins within our thinking or maybe even within the church. And we are to heed the warnings. What does it mean for believers to be stable? The obvious answer from Second Peter, I think, is to anticipate the second coming, to not twist the word of God and to abide by it. Those are themes throughout the book. Uh, Do not compromise your behavior to delve into immorality. Those are obvious things. These were all issues with the false prophets. Now, there's a supporting text for this idea of, of stability, even though it doesn't use that exact word. But the same idea, it's in 1 Timothy 1 where Paul mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander who essentially, uh, it says, shipwrecked their faith. Let's start with verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. You know anybody like that? Shipwreck of their faith? Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. How would you like to be on that list? Mentioned by the Apostle Paul. Right? It says something about, I think, how pointed you have to be sometimes with people who are in the church. Now, maybe they had some position, which is why Paul was being so direct, okay, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may maybe uh, learn how not to blaspheme. Again, there's a price to pay for that. It was a price to pay for Paul. I've never been thrown into prison, all right? I mean, I've had people stand up in a restaurant with their fist in my face when I confront them about something, um, that was not what I ordered at Hemingway's, but that's what they gave me, okay? Handing one over to Satan, that's a form of discipline, and it has to do with God taking them into a realm of where Satan can do what he wants with their body. It could mean a, a premature death, and it certainly meant trouble, uh, for our purposes, though, I want us to look at what faith means here. Sometimes faith has a definite article in front of it. So in my, when it says the faith, that means then it has to do with like a body of truth or maybe the gospel. But it doesn't have that here. So faith, in those cases, it means more the sincerity of your faith, the, the health of your faith. Okay, So it has to do kind of with our our inward state and relationship with the truth. Stay fit. And sincerity and right motives are implied in this. So we have to prepare ourselves to stay faithful. Make sure that your relationship with God is genuine. Ask yourself tough questions about the state of your faith. You know, there are people who use their faith experience to increase their business profile or enhance their social capital. But a sincere faith toward God has the heart pure. I'm just wanting to connect with God, connect with others. I want to know Him better. Okay? It's a pure motive. Jesus Christ was preparing himself for the biggest test of his life. He didn't read the latest rabbi release on the subject. He went to a garden and he prayed. And by the way, he asked some of his closest friends to pray for him. They snored. He was seeking to be intimate with the Heavenly Father. He was trying to align his heart with the revealed will of God and what he knew was up ahead. Maybe there's a lesson there. How do we align our hearts with the revealed will of God? We might have to utilize our own private Gethsemane to do it. We have to wrestle with God, seek that intimacy with him, make sure we're hearing him clearly, and even more importantly, we're we're making sure our heart has a posture of humility. Many times within my times with the Lord, it's not about understanding a word or concept, it's about getting my heart right. Humbling myself so I can hear. Staying fit. Another way to st- stabilize is to not defile our conscience, it says in 1 Timothy, by giving in to perversion of the truth. Do not allow your conscience to become dull. The conscience is that inner voice that helps us to distinguish between right or wrong. And now, it's not the the final determination, but it's kind of a a red flag that pops up, right? It says, hey, something's wrong here. A conscience may depend on the spirit of man acting through his will to execute its decrees. The definition of a good conscience is given in Acts 24, where it says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. There's a relationship with God and man that I want clean. So your conscience can let you know that. And in Hebrews it says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Covers all things. And this spoke to how he was relating the word of God to others. And he says, But we have renounced, disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse... To practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, in the way that I have used the word of God, my conscience does not bother me. Mm-mm-mm. You can be manipulated. The Word of God has to cut through that. Maybe it starts with a healthy skepticism of what we hear. That there's something about, I think, in America, that if we see it on the Internet, we just might think it's true. If it's on Google, it's got to be true, right? No. And spiritually, if we if we have a guy up on the stage and he He opens the Bible. He read a a verse. It must be true what he's saying about it. Not necessarily. We've got to be like the Bereans. We examine the Scriptures. God gave you a brain. I don't sit up here and speak ex cathedra, that everything that comes out of my mouth is from God. The only time that happens is when I read from Scripture. Scripture. Now, I want to explain it right, don't get me wrong. I don't want to be an error, but don't think that just because a guy is up there and he's got a loud volume and he speaks eloquently, that it's good and right. It's just not so. So we can't be naive about these things. So we have to have a good conscience. I want to use the word correctly. Verse 18, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And what really is a culminating statement about stability, Peter says to grow in grace and And knowledge. And notice it's connected to the person of Christ. Maybe one of the best defenses for us is to continue to progress or grow in our faith, particularly in our grace and knowledge of the Lord. So notice this first of all grace and knowledge are not static, we're to grow in both. We're saved by faith, according to Ephesians 2. We're strengthened by grace in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. We endure by grace in 2 Corinthians 12. And we even sacrifice and give by grace in 2 Corinthians 8. Grace is to be woven through our lives. It's not just when I came to Christ. It's to be a part of the way that we live our life. And it is then to temper how we relate to others by grace. I'll tell you, there are a lot of Christians who are living by law and not by grace. The first thing that comes out of their mouth is what you did wrong, a criticism Now, I tell you this in love, but that is their MO. But when grace is coming in, grace is going to go out. Doesn't mean you can't speak truth, but it's always with grace, tethered by humility because we know it all comes from God. The false teachers were fueled by self-effort and pride and and self-indulgence. Growing in grace often means experiencing hardships and sufferings. We experience God's grace when we are at the end of our resources. Haven't you found that to be true? Often God gets us on our back or we lose a job, or it's just something that happens. We get to the end of ourselves, and then it's like, oh, we start listening. I mean, the lessons learned in the school of grace are usually costly, but they are invaluable. See, knowledge without grace is a terrible weapon. And grace without knowledge is usually very shallow. But when we combine grace and knowledge, that's a marvelous tool for building up the church. The knowledge is objective, but it's also experiential. We utilize what we know about Jesus to grow, right? To draw near to him because the more lovely he is to me, we worship him, we we love him. Nobody drifts into spiritual growth and stability, but we can drift out of dedication and stability. D.A. Carson wrote, we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline, of lost self-control and call it relaxation, we slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. End quote. Dang, bringing some heat, D. A. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it, Hebrews says. Instability and drifting come when self-effort effort is our MO. It's interesting that Peter was so brash in his life and known for going to extremes. And now here he is talking about stability. You find that interesting? I mean, he could bear witness to Christ in one minute and argue with the Lord the next. He refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet, and then he wanted a whole bath. He promised to defend the Lord, even if it meant dying, and yet he didn't have the courage to acknowledge his relationship to Christ to a servant girl. Peter, who in the darkest moments, in self-protective panic, cried out, I don't know the man, now calmly declares, That the greatest safety we can have is increasingly being able to say, I know him. No, I mean, I really know him. My dear friends, there is hope for any of us if we can see a man like Peter grow from what he was to how he ended up. That's a pretty marvelous transformation. Please note that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And it's in both of these roles that we grow in him. That too is an essential safeguard. I pursue his mercy and grace and a deeper knowledge of his fullness as redeemer and Lord of my life. This is a safeguard to prevent being led astray. He keeps us in grace. His promises to us bring a certain future for a new heaven, a new earth. Hmm. Parker Palmer is an author who also happens to be a Quaker. And he was offered a job as president of a small educational institution. As Quaker tradition has it, he gathered 12 trusted friends to engage in what was called a clearness committee. Whereby you don't give advice, but ask questions to help make a decision. What a great thing to do. I love this idea. Somewhere in the session, someone asked, what would you like most about being a president? After pondering for a good minute or so without saying anything, he proceeded to talk about all the things he would not like. And he gave a litany of things. And the questioner came back, now may I remind you that I asked you what you would like most. After pondering again, Palmer said in the smallest voice possible, I guess what I'd like most is getting my picture in the paper and the word president under it. No one laughed. The questioner then cracked him open and asked this Parker, can you think of an easier way to get your picture in the paper? Palmer wisely ended up not taking the job as that president. My friends, second Peter. Is a clearness committee for us. It opens up the possibilities of the world and clearly reveals the righteous path while all else is futility. May we keep our eyes on our coming King so our hearts stay strong, stable and our vision clear. Let's pray.